Welcome to the Shotguns and Sugar podcast, where we take a deeper look at topics you don't learn about in school. I'm Dr. McCloskey, and I enjoy exploring different parts of history. The creation of the cotton gin and the textile industry it created, the development of the cattle industry, and the food canning processes are all stones in the foundation of the modern American agricultural industry, with ties to the Industrial Revolution. Today I want to extend this idea of innovation in the development of our modern agriculture industry. One of the key players in the evolution of American farming was a guy named Owen Lovejoy. He was born in 1811 into the family of Patti and Emma Lovejoy. Patti was a congregational minister and farmer. In 1828, Owen followed his parents' advice and enrolled in nearby Bowden College. In 1831, he left college and returned home to help on the farm after his father's untimely death. After his family's life stabilized, in 1836, he moved to Alton, Illinois, to study theology, probably at Shirtleaf College. The fact that one of Owen's brothers, Elijah, had lived there for several years undoubtedly influenced his decision to move to Alton. Elijah was a Presbyterian minister and, as editor of the Alton Observer, was an ardent member of the anti-slavery movement. A year after he moved to Alton, Owen witnessed his brother's murder at the hands of a pro-slavery mob. He was killed protecting his printing press, the fourth he had purchased to spread the gospel of abolitionism. The experience moved Owen into the ranks of radical abolitionists. He is said to have sworn on his brother's grave that he would never forsake the cause that had been sprinkled with my brother's blood. He and another one of his brothers, he had seven siblings, wrote a book memorializing Elijah's life, entitled Memoir of the Reverend Elijah P. Lovejoy, who was murdered in defense of liberty of the press at Alton, Illinois, November 7, 1837. The work made his brother a martyr for the cause and became an important propaganda tool for the anti-slavery movement. In 1838, he accepted a position with the Hampshire Colony Congregational Church in Princeton, Illinois. While there, he boarded with Butler and Eunice Denham on their 1,300-acre farm. A year after Butler's death, he married Eunice and continued to maintain their farm. In 1854, Lovejoy entered politics, believing that it would provide him with a wider voice in his campaign against slavery. After one term in the state legislature, he was elected to the House of Representatives, a position he held until his death from Bright's disease in 1864. Lincoln's election in 1860 resulted in the withdrawal of the House and Senate delegations from the 11 Confederate states. Without the influence of a strong Democratic presence, the 37th Congress, led by a group of radical Republicans, of which Lovejoy was one, enacted a series of far-reaching bills that had nothing to do with the Civil War. In fact, several had been gathering dust in committee for years. As chairman of the Agriculture Committee, Lovejoy supported the Homestead Act, the Morrill Act, and an act creating the Bureau of Agriculture. Two out of these three acts were key to the modern agricultural industry. But before we get into those, I want to talk about the lowly tractor. With the southern history of plantation farming, it should be no surprise that the development of more efficient farming equipment like the tractor took place elsewhere. The earliest patent on record for a farm tractor was filed in 1859 from a New York inventor. It was steam-driven with caterpillar-like rear wheels and steel front wheels. Its inventor described it as a locomotive for the use of drawing plows or pulling loaded wagons over fields or on common roads. 
The first gasoline-powered tractor was built in 1892 by Mr. John Froelich, who lived in a small town in northeast Iowa. Its first year, it threshed 72,000 bushels of grain. Later that year, Froelich and some friends formed the Waterloo Gasoline Traction Engine Company to manufacture his tractor. While the initial effort was a financial failure, after remodeling Froelich's invention, the company sold 118 in 1914. In 1918, the company was purchased by the John Deere Company. They continued to use the Waterloo plant for the manufacture of their 21st century tractors. From the standpoint of mechanical advancements in the agricultural industry, the tractor was certainly one of the most significant in terms of 20th century farming. It permitted a single farm worker to handle a farm of a thousand acres or more. This increased efficiency made it possible for family farmers to have more time for their family while at the same time producing a larger harvest. Advances like the tractor and the implements they pulled contributed significantly to increased production in the north, midwest, west, and southwest, everywhere but the south. Mired in a cultural aristocracy that placed white landowners at the top of the pecking order and poor whites and blacks at the bottom, the South hung on to the plantation system using sharecropping and tenant farming that, because of their social design, could not take advantage of developments like the tractor that the rest of the country embraced. Before the South could change, Lovejoy's projects needed to take root and grow. A Lovejoy's contributions establishing a research development and training infrastructure to support the evolution of agriculture was, in my mind, his second most important contribution. The Morrill Act of 1862 provided each state with 30,000 acres of federal land for each member of its congressional delegation. The land was to be sold off and the proceeds used to create a college that focused on agricultural and mechanical studies. Here in Texas, the land-grant college, as they are appropriately called, is Texas A&M University. In 1890, as Jim Crow legislation continued to marginalize African Americans through the separate but equal doctrine, Representative Justin Smith Morrill, the namesake of the first act, introduced legislation authorizing each state to create a second land-grant college specifically for the black community. Here in Texas, the product of this act is Prairie View A&M. These colleges not only trained students in agricultural techniques, but served as research facilities identifying new techniques and even crops that could help farmers improve productivity. They also encouraged the growth of state and private institutions serving the same purpose. One of these was the Tuskegee Institute. The Tuskegee Institute was established in 1881 as a normal school, a teacher's training institution. Its original structure followed the philosophy of its first president, Booker T. Washington. However, it went well beyond teaching teachers. Washington's philosophy centered on the idea that whites' respect for blacks would improve as blacks demonstrated their ability to compete with them successfully. Therefore, he emphasized trade skills as much as academic skills. In his autobiography, Up From Slavery, he noted that brick-making was the program that he was most proud of. George Washington Carver was one of the best-known faculty members in the early years of Tuskegee. Carver was born to a slave woman towards the end of the Civil War. When he was in his 20s, he was admitted to Simpson College in Indianola, Iowa, where he studied general education topics like grammar and basic math. However, his greatest interest was in the arts, particularly painting. He later transferred to Iowa State College, the state's land-grant university, to focus his studies on chemistry and plant biology, although they were not called that at the time. 
He so impressed the faculty that they encouraged him to remain in school and work towards a Master's of Agriculture. Soon after his graduation in 1896, he accepted an offer from Booker T. Washington to come to Tuskegee and establish a Department of Agriculture with Carver at its head. The offer was a bit of serendipity in that Washington wanted an all-black faculty and Carver, with his newly minted master's degree, was the only black in the United States with a graduate degree in scientific agriculture. Not long after he settled into his job at Tuskegee, Carver convinced the Department of Agriculture to establish an experimental station at the school so he could use it for his research. His work in agricultural chemistry helped show area farmers how using good cultivation practices could preserve the quality of the soil. He also demonstrated how practicing crop rotation, including using lentils in the rotation, would restore soil depleted from decades of cotton farming. Some farms saw a tenfold increase in cotton production after using his methods. When the boll weevil decimated southern cotton in the early 20th century, he found profitable replacement crops like the peanut and sweet potato. While his success with the peanut is the thing of legend, his success with sweet potatoes is inspiring. He found uses for them as flour, sugar, and chocolate, and as ingredients in various stains, dyes, and paints. Although not industrial in terms of hardware, Carver's contribution to the American agricultural industry was as important as the tractor or fertilizers. As important as the Morrill Act was to American agriculture, I believe Lovejoy's most important contribution was the creation of the Bureau of Agriculture, now known as the United States Department of Agriculture, or by its acronym, USDA. The act was signed in May of 1861, and by October there was a full-time chemist conducting studies at the agency. His first analysis had to do with the growth of the winemaking industry and the potential for expanding the uses of sorghum. The new agency's first annual report also included a section titled The Gardener's Report. This section noted that the gardener was collecting seeds and was analyzing studies conducted outside of the agency regarding plants and plant hardiness. The work of the USDA's gardens in 1862 presages the creation of the 90 or so USDA research facilities in existence today. These are separate from the agricultural experimental stations that each individual state operates. That said, about 60% of their funding comes from federal funds authorized under the Hatch Act of 1887. One of the USDA's finest hours started in 1935 when Congress created the Soil Conservation Service. This division of the USDA was charged with helping resolve the farmers' plight in the southern Great Plains, the area covered by the infamous Dust Bowl, eastern Colorado, western Kansas, and the Oklahoma and Texas panhandles. Soil scientists spread throughout the region teaching farmers techniques for preserving soils in dryland farming. These included such old-school techniques as four-field crop rotation and terracing, but also included new methods like contour plowing, strip farming, and planting trees to create windbreaks. One of the causes of the Dust Bowl was the way farmers used chemical fertilizers to maintain crop yields. The first patent for a mixed fertilizer was issued in 1849, yet the practice grew slowly for the rest of the century. By the 1890s, less than 2 million tons of commercial fertilizer was used annually. Yet by 1920, the usage tripled to more than 6 million tons. The increase in fertilizer equated with the decline in farm labors. In 1890, about 40% of the population was involved in farming. By 1940, that number had dropped to 18%.
The change was the result of the increase in large corporate farms. Some may blame it all on the Great Depression, but that ignores the growth of manufacturing related to World War I. The war years took sharecroppers away from the fields and into the military, leaving the plantation owners in the lurch. With the better hours and more regular income that urban jobs provided, the commercial boom of the 1920s discouraged these soldier farmers from returning from the fields. Similarly, insecticides had been around for years, but the first artificially synthesized one was not produced until the 1890s. Yes, DDT was first discovered in 1825, but its properties as an insecticide were not recognized until 1939. The chemical revolution really took off after World War II, when southern farmers replaced sharecropping with skilled day workers who could handle tractors and combines. 1954 was the first year the number of tractors exceeded the number of mules and horses on the farm. Without the livestock, there was no need for land to grow feed for them, increasing available commercial crop land by as much as 25%. Also, chemical fertilizers, in the minds of the corporate farmers, meant that letting land lie fallow, or that rotating less profitable crops like beans in place of more profitable crops like cotton, was no longer necessary. You could just add more fertilizer to make up for the declining mineral content of the soil. The chemical revolution of the 1950s moved us closer to the large factory-like corporate farms that are so common today, but increasing their productivity to 21st century levels took more than just fancy sprayers. It took the technological revolution of the 1980s and 90s. The foundation for that revolution started in the world of agriculture in 18, not 19, but 1842, and it involved the most expensive race in history. In 1842, an Austrian scientist named Christian Doppler theorized that the relative speed and distance of a sound wave's source compared to another point changed the frequency of that wave. The next year, a Dutch meteorologist named Christoph Ballot proved Doppler's theory. He put a group of trumpet players on a train and stood outside to see if the sound changed as the train passed him. In fact, the trumpet player's pitch dropped just as it passed by, then increased again the further away the train moved. Ballot called it the Doppler effect. In the 1930s, naval researchers discovered that the Doppler effect allowed them to use radar to track the speed and distance of planes in the air, or ships at sea. Fast forward to 1957. On October 4th, the Soviet Union launched the space race, the most expensive race in the history of mankind, when it sent Sputnik 1 into space. American observers noticed that they could track its location, and therefore its speed, using the Doppler effect. In the mid-1970s, the United States military developed a system that allowed them to use the Doppler effect to track ships and submarines by sending radio waves to and from satellites orbiting both poles. They called it a Global Positioning System, or GPS for short. Since the system was declassified in 1983, it, or at least a less accurate version of it, has been generally available to the public. Google Maps is one of many companies that uses it to track your location on your phone. In 1982, NASA brought together satellite imagery and the GPS when it launched Landsat 4. Transmissions from this satellite created what we call today the remote sensing industry. Using satellite data, a farmer can quickly see in which areas of his field plants are growing better than other areas. The poor growing areas, often smaller than one-fourth the size of a basketball court, can then be given the additional fertilizer needed to bring that area up to the same quality as the rest of the field. 
There is a truism that says the reason to study history is so we won't repeat it. To me, the fascinating part of this entire process of agricultural contribution to the Industrial Revolution is the way it defies this truism. The best example I know of is the four-field crop rotation system. The agricultural revolution started in the 1600s with the introduction of the four-field crop rotation system to England. This is the same system that the newly minted Department of Agriculture promoted in 1862, that Carver taught sharecroppers in the 19-teens, and that the Soil Conservation Service taught the dust bowlers in the 1930s. Yet today, 20 years into the 21st century, soil scientists are striving to get farmers, who are losing money due to the high cost of fertilizers and hybrid plants, to restore their worn-out farmland by implementing the four-field crop rotation system. I have a friend who's a soil scientist. He once told me that a farmer who will follow his system of land restoration, which is essentially a modernized crop rotation system, can realize increased production at reduced cost inside four years. So much for agriculture and the Industrial Revolution. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shotguns and Sugar podcast. If you'd like to learn more about this topic or access a list of resources used to create this podcast, check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com.